Imagine this. It's the late 90s, and you've come from Nigeria to the UK to do your MBA in finance. After completion, you think the world's your oyster. With degree in hand, you applied a number of jobs in London, but there are no responses to your exceptional credentials. You begin to think about your options and the future you wish for, and consider moving to Canada. You've heard great things about the country. Prior to getting on a plane to Toronto, you've applied to dozens of jobs in the city in hopes of landing something before you arrive. No luck. You get on a plane anyway, count your blessings, and the plane takes off. Landing in Toronto, you begin your journey in corporate Canada as a Nigerian-Canadian woman with sights set on joining a capital markets team. I'm Shilpa. Welcome to Her Climb. Her Climb is a series of interviews with extraordinary Black, Indigenous women of colour, creating and leading change in corporations and organizations in Canada and around the world. While climbing up the organization or across the organization, they're also making space for a new generation of leaders. On today's episode, we speak with Adiola Adebayo about her climb. Starting from being told that she has no Canadian qualifications to landing her first job as a customer rep at American Express, to eventually making her way to Omer's Capital Markets, where she is a director in the global credit team. We talk about the importance of sponsorship, discrimination, and being one of the very few women of color in capital markets. Adiola's determination has carried her through the ups and downs that come with trying to find your place in a world where very few people look like you. Hi, Adiola. Thank you for being here with us today. Hello, Shilpa. How are you? Thanks for having me on the on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Adiola. I am thrilled that you can join us. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay, so I'm Adiola Adibayo, as Shilpa introduced me. Um, I, um, I come from Nigeria is my background. I come from a family of five as the oldest child. Growing up, my parents actually provided a nurturing loving and disciplined environment that instilled a sense of confidence and a can-do attitude from a very young age. Uh, I also saw, you know, my parents, we grew up with with my parents showing kindness to people from all walks of life. Uh, we're always, our home was always very open to people and, and that I think helped shape my passion for people. I've said people now three times in the, in the space of <laughs> two seconds because I, 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 I think putting people first is, is key, you know, and treating people well is, is very critical and important in life and how your life shapes out to be. What else can I say? Growing up, I, I wanted to be a lawyer because my father was in the legal profession. He served this country for many years and retired as a judge. And, you know, I, I'm like, oh, I want to be a lawyer when I grew up. Uh, but, you know, you know, from an African family, if you know anything about Africans and Nigerians, you know, you're, you either want your, your kids to be, you know, a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, you know, those kind of professions. And, you know, for some reason, my, my dad is like, no, you should go into the sciences. I was like, but that's funny that you, you're in the legal profession. But my husband to date still says to me that, you know, well, you should have been a lawyer, though, because the way you argue your cases and, and influence and persuade people is like is incredible. 
But anyway, um, I, I did start out on the science path, but um, at the same time, I was doing science courses, you know, doing the social sciences, the businesses and economic courses as well. But, you know, got pushed into doing the sciences. And, you know, after failing my science course, um, <laughs> I realized quickly <laughs> that <laughs> like maybe that's not the path that you should be going. And my parents uh, finally said, you know, well, kids do whatever you wanted to do. And um, I ended up uh, in the social sciences and, um, you know, choosing finance as, as a first degree. And uh, I mean, and, and the rest is history. I, I really loved the world of finance and business. And maybe it was because you could just relate to it, you know, um, out there daily, you're, you're figuring out what's going on, you're, you're, you're spending money, you, you're, you're looking at businesses, some grow, some die, you know what I mean? And uh, it was it just came up naturally. And I had this analytical mine and I was very intellectually curious as well too. I asked a lot of questions, even from a very young age. It was it was crazy. I mean to date my husband says to me, look, you can ask like ten questions in like in the span of one minute. And you know, I'm still trying to figure out the first question. You're already going <laughs> on and asking, you know, uh, that. And I go, because one thing leads to another. And I find that you don't know people or you don't get to understand things if you don't ask questions. So in a nutshell, that's that was me growing up. Can Adiola, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, failing um, out of the sciences? And that probably I would assume at that time of your life, that was a significant event for you. And how did you respond to that? How did you move forward from that? And has that first failure shaped uh, some of how you've dealt with failure in the future? Absolutely, Shilper. I mean, I this this happened at the age of 16, 17, actually. So I was actually quite young. And for someone who had never experienced failure before, you were always top of your class. And then, you know, you actually failed. And for me, it was like, this is not possible. What happened? Is it, is it because I'm not smart? Uh, is, it, is it because I didn't study hard enough? But, you know, it happened and it was it was hurtful. And my parents, especially, I mean, African parents, your child failed, like, that's a big disgrace. How are we going to face our friends? You know what I mean? They probably weren't thinking about how I was going to face my friends. <laughs> Which um, what I did was get up, dust myself up, went back to redo, you know, the entrance exams to get back into uh, university and to apply and to do the course I wanted to do, right? Because I, it was a time where I had to search myself and figure out, like, well, maybe I'm not really that good at the sciences. Maybe I really, that's not my passion. But to be honest, I really like the business side of things, the economic side of things, right? But it made me strong from a very young age. I, I realized like failure wasn't fatal. So I failed quickly and I got up quickly. And for sure, you're going to have friends who are going to be like, oh, you know, did you know what happened to Adiola? She went into this course, she failed, now she has to go. So at the end of the day, I had friends who had gone, we'd all, we'd all entered university at the same time. And I had, and then I, I failed the science course and I had to come out. And they, I was like two years behind them. So you can imagine for a child like six, 17, 18, <laughs> but for somehow there was just this inner strength in me and my parents came round when, you know, we all, the dust settled and they figured that, you know, this child is really good at this. We should allow her to actually pursue that dream. And, you know, I got the support and the love from them. And I got admitted into one of the best universities for my undergrad in Nigeria then and uh, went on to, you know, come up top of the class as well. And it really taught me that, like I said, failure is not fatal. 
you learn from it and you move on. I think it obviously set me up for other things to come in life because you're going to always, you know, experience adversity. Like, and they all come in different ways and we all experience them differently, right? And I think of, obviously that also prepared me for when I moved to the UK and I moved here trying to break into <laughs> capital markets, you know, as a woman of color. You know, I think that experience back then at a very young age actually built that resilience muscle and that, um, you know, never give up muscle. It was part of my you know, training growing up, which it wasn't pleasant at that age, right? But, you know, you go through it and um, you're grateful for it now when you look back. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, coming from uh, Nigeria, moving to the UK, why why you made that move, and then also moving from the UK to Canada and, and what that was like when you first arrived in Canada? Yeah, so, you know, generally when you finish your your first degree or your or your secondary school studies in, in Nigeria, the next part of call to further your education is generally the UK, right? Because, you know, we're under the British system, British school education, you know, we're very close to the UK because the UK was, you know, the British colonized Nigeria. So there's just that uh, that strong bond. My, my father was educated in the UK as well. As such, that was the natural progression. So you go in there, you do your postgraduate, and then, you know, I started to think, what next, right? I didn't want to stay in the UK after a while because it was also very difficult back then to get a job in the UK in the city after my MBA in finance. I mean, trying to get a, a job, this was in like in the late 90s. It was just so difficult to break in there as well. And then, you know, a friend of mine had talked about, oh, like Canada is a great country. My uncle had actually come to school in Canada many years. So we've heard about Canada. I had visited the US a couple of times as a child on holiday with my parents, but we'd never been to Canada, but we'd heard good things about Canada. And, you know, a friend of mine had said, oh, like, you know, they're looking for skilled workers, like skilled immigrants and all. So I, I, I did some research and looked into it on the website. And I'm like, well, I qualify, you know, I think, you know, I'll be able to contribute to the society and do well. I can come and get a job in capital markets in the investing world. And that was it. So I applied to come to Canada as a skilled immigrant, got the papers in the mail. Everything was done. And I packed my bags, no job, nothing. And I moved to this new country uh, as a young adult. It was early. I was in my early 20s, you know, but I had this passion for investing. And I thought, well, it should be very easy to get a job, right, in capital markets in Canada, right? But uh, it was a rude awakening when I did get here that it wasn't easy breaking into the world of finance and capital markets, especially as an immigrant, as a woman and a woman of color in Canada. I mean, I remember coming in and, you know, trying to get a job and I'll be told, you don't have Canadian experience. And I go, well, how do I get Canadian experience? if you don't give me the opportunity or the chance to work, <laughs> right? And I applied to all the firms you could. Even before coming to Canada, I applied to all the firms I could think of on Bay Street. And uh, it was all rejection letters. But I still came anyway because I knew that uh, I wasn't giving up on that dream uh, to come here. So my first job here was in a call center in American Express. And, you, you, you know, you take the job, you know, you get the experience. Obviously, I wanted to have the name of the firm on my resume as I started to build my career here. Then I moved on to Nesbitt Burns, uh, Beamer Nesbitt Burns, which is a retail investment uh, wealth management firm. And then I moved on to Sun Life, which is break actually came for me. And, you know, somebody um, 
um, gave me the chance to actually start to work as an analyst in the investment team at Sun Life. And then, I mean, the, the, the rest is history. So it took a bit of time getting there, but you know, you remain focused, uh, persistent, and you continue to build relationships uh, and do your work with excellence and uh, the doors opened up eventually. Can I ask, during your early journey, and, and even now um, as a professional, a woman of color, uh, have you experienced my, what is termed as microaggression? I was, I was recently reading an article in Medium written by a black woman in corporate Canada, and she speaks about the microaggressions she was experiencing in the financial services space and and talks about how the toll it was taking on her mental health. Have you seen that in the financial services space? Have you experienced that during this time um, as you progressed in your career or even now? Well, well, absolutely. Whatever you want to call it, microaggression, unconscious bias, conscious bias, outright discrimination uh, as a result of your name. I probably experienced that a lot because you send your resume. My name is Adiola Adebayo. You really don't know where I'm from. But most of the time, I mean, things are changing now. I mean, thank God, slowly. But back then, this is like over 20, 22 years ago, you know, you, your resume is not even looked at because your name is right up there. So uh, people can't pronounce it. So why should I even look at your resume or even give you a chance? So for sure. And then, you know, you, you, you get into the organization as well. And, um, you know, there are people that, that look at you and think, well, you know, you were not educated here, number one. You didn't have the right networks. You didn't go to Western, you know what I mean? Uh, or, or McGill or, or U of T or whatever. So um, what do you really know, right? And, you know, you really have to prove yourself all the time to, 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 to show that you are capable, you are smart, and you, you, you know, you deserve to be at the table just like everybody else. And, you know, outright, I mean, I, I recall a conversation where I got a promotion and um, I, I actually heard that some other guy said, well, you got the she got the promotion because she's she's just black. You know what I mean? And she's a woman. They're just, you know, um, and just probably trying to fill a quota or whatever. And, you know, my, my manager then said he told this fellow and said she got the job because she's smarter than you. Oh, awesome. well done. Yes. You, you know what I mean? And this is a white male, my white male manager. Right. And um, because the, the, the fellow had been there, you know, before me and expected that he should have gotten the promotion first. Right. But, you know, he stood up for me and that was um, so encouraging. And, you know, for me, I mean, for sure, it can take its mental toll on women, especially when you don't have you don't see people that look like you, you know, up there, especially. And when even when I growing up in this industry, there really were not many women in position of leadership. They were all white male, which is still the case. Right. But, you know, I, I, I want to believe that things are changing slowly um, as we start to talk about this difficult conversation, as we start to educate ourselves, as we start to become more aware of what's going on and the talent you know, around us. I, I believe together we can all make a difference. And I was also, Adiola, recently reading um, statistics. Uh, there's a recent study that's come out from Ryerson's Diversity Institute that says that in Toronto, the number of racialized professional women is far higher than the number of non-racialized women, yet you see very few racialized women in leadership positions in Toronto. Why do you think 
we're seeing this when it's not about there's not enough women, racialized women, because I've heard, well, there's just not enough racialized women to move them up the corporation, which is actually, in fact, incorrect. Why do you feel that it's been, it is such a long journey for women of color in particular? Honestly, one word I would use to describe it is sponsorship, right? And what do I mean by sponsorship? First of all, let let, let me backtrack. There are talented, strong women of color there. You're just not looking in the right places to find them. And it has to be intentional in my mind, right? First of all, if you, you, you probably have them in your organization, maybe not enough of them. You know, people tend to recruit the same people who look like them, have got the same backgrounds as they have, right? Uh, it's just people they're comfortable with and they don't want to get out of their comfort zone. But uh, we do know that diversity of thought is key in making great sound decisions for companies. And it, you know, it, it enables you to be able to, you know, um, explore different perspectives where people bring different things to the table and you end up, you know, with better outcomes all the time. So what I would say is, first of all, get to know your people because there are those amazing women of color who are top performers in your organization that have great potential and, you know, they bring a lot to the table, but you need to get to know them. And that's intentional. And it's just not for women of color. You as a leader need to get to know your team members. <laughs> and whether they're white or Asians or blacks or, you know, wherever they're from, whatever the background, you need to get to know your people. So that way, you know what each person brings to the table and you know how to encourage, how to champion and where to put people in the right place. That way you set them up for success. I think for women of color, especially, I mean, until it becomes, you know, more organic, you know, it's got to be intentional. So you've got to give them stretched assignments and prof- and projects that raise their profiles, that showcases that strength, and that continues to allow them to grow and develop. And I talked about sponsorship in the first place. Sponsorship means advocating for them, not just the women of color, all the talented performers that you see got the potential behind closed doors. Leaders that have the clout and then hold the seat of power in the organization need to advocate. Like I mentioned, my former boss where I used to work before, you know, he's out there. I didn't know who's advocating for me when somebody's saying she got the job because she's a woman. She said she got the job because she deserved to get the job. I found an article by a woman who's a CEO of a not-for-profit. She's South Asian and and wrote about subtle racism and biases. And, And she writes about, you know, she has an expertise in a particular aspect of health and is often presenting at conferences and is often paired with a white male and and how frustrating it is for her that in many instances that person will come in and take over the conversation even though she's done all the work she's the expert in this has spent years working and learning about this particular topic and how it's eventually you know it started to chip away at her health and and so when you say you know get to know your people and and you've also mentioned that they should get to know everyone irrespective of their race or gender I think that helps in terms of ensuring uh, the right people are speaking up or the people who've done the work are also speaking up. Because have you have you had those experiences where you've done all this work and where it's repeated? You're you're doing the work, you're doing the grunt work, and then the presentation is taken over by someone else. And 
I think if it's occasionally you you know that this is maybe how things work, but eventually you will get the credit. But if you never actually see yourself in getting credit, it does chip away at your feeling of worth. It does, and I I experienced that earlier in my career, and uh, but but now I mean I. <laughs> You know, you develop a thick skin and you take ownership of your work <laughs>、um, intentionally as well, right? You know, it like I say to people, it doesn't have to have be a competition because we all have our strengths and weaknesses, right? And that's where you need good leadership, leaders who can put the right people in the right places. I mean, there should be healthy competition or motivation to help us to do better, but it shouldn't be where I'm going to take credit for the work that you've done and belittle you and make you feel smaller, right? Then you really know that is really not good leadership in my mind, and, and, and that's where trust comes in. And if I say to you, yes, I'm doing all the grunt work and all that, but you know, go, go ahead and, and lead the presentation. That's fine, but please give me the, the the first chance and opportunity to present, you know, you know, my ideas, you know, and what I've created, and feel free to support me. You know what I mean? And jump in. Um, to compliment me, because we should be complimenting one another. You do have to develop that atmosphere and that culture in, in an organisation and a team, and it, and it takes a strong,、uh, good leader to be able to do that, right? Because otherwise, yes, I mean, I've experienced it where you know you said something, whatever, somebody else hijacks it as their own and goes on, right? But there are also ways to actually, you know, bring it back to the fact that that idea came from you. But but it's difficult, no doubt, Shilpa. It takes a lot of、um, a lot of skill and grace to deal with a lot of things that、uh, we see as women and women of color. What I do know, I mean, like I, I can tell you that, despite all that has happened throughout my career and getting here, I've been blessed really to have had male leaders in my industry throughout throughout the different stages of my career. You know, raise my profile, challenge me, give me feedback, some negative, positive. You know, and, and just supported me to bring out that full potential. For that, I'm grateful. Like I've been in this industry for 22 years, and I've only had, I think, about three female leaders in this industry in my career. The rest have been male. And as such, you know, for me now is how do we empower the next generation of women coming up? How do I pass on the knowledge and the experience, and you know, how do I help to encourage and support the next、uh, level of generation coming up behind me? Do you think in your early years, and I imagine you being similar、um, in terms of your confidence and how you speak, and did you find sometimes that the confidence and the belief in yourself could actually be a barrier when you were meeting with people and having conversations? Yes and no, right. Like I said, I grew up in a family where we were we were taught to speak up, and I wasn't afraid to ask people stuff, right? And I I mean, which is why today I have a lot of older friends as well. But yeah, sometimes women could be perceived as being aggressive because they're very、um, confident and they speak up. But you know, I I've tried, and 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 sometimes I'm not sure whether it's a weakness of mine which I work on. Sometimes my husband. Says to me, you just say things as it is, like you know what I mean. Like I'm a very straight and direct person, and I I expect people to be straight and direct with me. Like just give me the feedback when things happen, give it to me positive or negative, 
I can take the negative ones. Sometimes it's like, oh, okay, that's a bit hurtful. Or maybe that's not right. Or maybe that's right, actually. I do need to work on that a bit more. But uh, for me, that, that confidence, I think, has actually helped me uh, in my career here because you're working in an industry where they're white, it's dominated by white men or men in general. And men are generally very confident, even sometimes when what they're saying doesn't make sense, to be honest. I agree. <laughs> yes. I'm just being very open. I have my husband and my son. I see it in them, right? But they just say it. And, and, and women, you know, sometimes we hesitate. We wait until we think we have all the right answers before we can speak up. You wait to have all the right qualifications on that pay, on that job description before you can apply. But men, and statistically it's been shown, research shows that if they've got 60% of, you know, the qualifications, they will actually apply for the job. And women will wait until they get, have 100% or 101%. So over the years, I mean, obviously, coming in here and trying to break in. I, I learned that quickly. It's like, no, just apply for the job. You might not have everything that it takes, but you just hope that when you get that interview, that person sees you and sees and recognizes the talent. You just need to try and get in front of that person. And many times I've gotten in front of the people and they've said no, and I didn't get the job, which is fine. And I just move on to the next one. But I think it's absolutely important. And I know the the, the women who are just introverts, they, they're not people who um, speak up a lot. And there is a place for women like that in the organization. But as leaders, you have to recognize your introverts and your extroverts and then play to their strengths. Um, I remember asking one of my bosses, an American man who had hired me, he said, you know, you're a very confident person and all. And I go, do I come across as arrogant? Because that's what I am not. And I don't want to come across as arrogant to people. Have you ever had the feeling that you've had to alter a little bit about yourself so that you could fit the culture a little bit better? That's, that's a really good one, Shilpa. Now, now you know me, look at me. <laughs> I am a black African woman with no hair. Does that sound like a woman that is in the financial services sector? It does not. and it's It a- does not, exactly. <laughs> and that's where having that building your confidence and knowing who you are and and knowing that you should not be you shouldn't judge yourself by how you look and conform like i chose to wear my hair short and natural uh, and i've had it like that for 20 years because my hair was breaking and i decided to chop it off and start again but then when i chopped it off it was liberating it was freedom for me (laughs) and because i worked out a lot and I, i went swimming a lot it made no sense where I'll go and get my hair done and then I'll come out is looking so wet. So it was just a, a great hairstyle for my lifestyle. And, you know, I, I was very confident in the way I am very confident in the way I wear it. I mean, don't judge me by my looks, judge me by what comes out of my mouth and my intellectual capacity. But to be honest with you, people judge you by your looks right away when they see you. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, and I, I've seen it on people's faces where, you know, you're talking to people on the phone, you know, um, you're talking, you're asking questions and all that and trying to get to know the understand the proposal, whatever it is. And then, you know, we're meeting with them finally and you see the look on the face when you come into the room right away. <laughs> For me, it doesn't bother me. And I haven't felt pressured to grow my hair 
to to make it look like you know are uh, uh, more Western. I choose to keep my hair short because I love it that way, and I, I really don't have time to do it otherwise. I am who I am. I I, I believe in authentic leadership. I I am a very optimistic person, uh, and a, a also a realistic person as well. Uh, yeah, it, it happens. I've seen it a lot, but um, to be honest, you need to be yourself. And we need to be able to create environments and cultures where people can bring their whole self to work. I agree completely, because I think when people feel like they can bring their whole self, you actually have so much more energy and so much more um, productivity. Exactly. And create and creativity, right? They're free to really think as openly as and big as they can. In terms of the future, I know that you're on a diversity and inclusion council. I've been on diversity and inclusion councils. Where do you think and how do you think we're going to, because we've been having conversations around diversity for a while now, more so recently, and Canada's, you know, we market our country as being multicultural and, and very uh, immigration friendly. Um, how can we ensure that we are the nation that we say we are and and that we actually truly start to unpack some of the systemic racism and bias and biases that exist so that for the next generation, they have a different set of challenges, not this challenge? Uh, that's a great one, because we are having that those conversations uh, at my organization. We are having it in, you know, in my group. You need to start with talking. I mean, I, I find a lot of people don't like to have difficult conversations. <laughs> I, I, I've been reading a book uh, by a consultant and he's talking, having the last 8%. Those very hard conversations that are going to really move the needle and, and drive change in your organization. Uh, one person at a time, you know, I, I believe you need to start talking about it and we need to become more self-aware. We need to start, you know, really looking at our behaviors and the way we think. And, you know, we've got to make a conscious effort. It's got to be intentional. Like you mentioned, we've been talking about this for years. Now we need action, <laughs> right? Because we can't let it go on like this longer because you've got the next generation of, 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 of children, you know, and youth coming up. I mean, they should be having other things to deal with, not what we've been dealing with for the past hundred years. But I think really, I mean, Canadians are very polite and I love Canada. I love Canadians, but they're very polite. Sometimes they don't want to admit that there is a problem and they kind of sweep it under the rug, hoping that it will go away, but it doesn't go away. So, I think having those conversations, putting actions for, for, for an organization, first of all, you need to figure out your people, break it down by, by gender, by ethnicity, by levels. You need to have the data, first of all. For, and then, then you need to know what you're working in, what's the problem, where are the problems, and then where can we start to tackle stuff. And, you know, you have to put actions, you know, measurable actions in place because you have to be accountable. What gets measured gets actioned. You know, my, my, my boss has mentioned that a few times. And it's going to take time, but people need to see that you're committed to this. It's not just by words of mouth, but, you know, your recruiting practices, your, your whole performance management and promotion practices at work all need to be reassessed. You need to develop and promote a place where 
there is it is safe for people to talk about racism if they actually experience racism in the organization create a safe place for them to be able to come up and speak up to have the courage to but it starts from the top your com- your comment about safe creating safety and safe spaces to have these conversations how do we create those because uh, in my conversations with a number of people they don't view human resources as a partner. They view human resources. And I was actually surprised by this because I have always considered them a partner, even when I wasn't always getting the response I needed. And and very recently, from a number of people, I've been hearing, you know, they're not a partner, they're protecting the organization. And so is human resources the right place? Because I'm starting to wonder if there needs to be a diversity person that reports to the CEO that isn't in human resources and really focused on having those conversations and not feeling that they have to protect the organization? Because I've been thinking a lot about how do you create, what avenue do you take in an organization to have those conversations and create the change? And you're actually right. And I've heard that before as well, that human resources, uh, they they don't do anything for the employees. But I believe um, that will start to change with, you know, um, the lens that has been put on this, you know, this topic and this conversation that we're having all over the world. And I strongly believe as well, I remember four or five years ago when I started to get involved in the diversity and inclusion conversation at OMAS, I'd mentioned to um, the previous um, chief human resource officer, I said to her, you need to have somebody that is dedicated to inclusion and diversity, like separately, because we didn't really have that, right? It was being, the function was being um, looked at by HR. I said, no, this is a big, big, you know, conversation. And, and you need to have somebody that is dedicated, someone that's passionate about it and wants to create change, you know, that will work with everybody else to come up with different programs and and, and uh, policies to help us become more inclusive uh, and diverse. And, you know, as such, you know, a role was created at, at OMOS for that. And I'm, I'm so pleased uh, with the person who's uh, leading that uh, function at, at, at OMOS, but the person's got to have the support of the leaders as well to be able to do their job the way it should be done in an objective way. And you're right, you know, a lot of people are afraid or don't even bother going to human resources anymore because they feel like their their complaint doesn't get hurt and it doesn't go anywhere. And as such, you know, probably having small diversity groups in different areas of the organization where people can actually talk about these things they're experiencing in a safe place, I think is key. And then that is escalated up. That's the good way to go, right? Because some people, you know, don't have the courage to go to HR or they don't have the courage to talk to their manager. Or sometimes they talk to their manager and the manager doesn't do anything about it. So you need to have diversity and inclusion champions across the organization in different groups. You know, people that can, that can influence, people that can, you know, engage with others to bring out what's really going on, knowing that, you know, those conversations will then be taken as escalated and looked into and not just swept under the rug. What do you hope in five years that corporations will have accomplished so that we feel like we have actually made some change, that all of these conversations have actually contributed to a meaningful change in how we we work? 
Well, first of all, I mean, what I'd like to see in the next five years is to have the boards, the executive teams of the large companies uh, and small, medium-sized companies in Canada become very diverse. I mean, I would like to see them representing the face of Canada, right? (laughs) I would like them to look like the society we live in. It's not a lack of qualified people. It's a lack of not seeing the qualified people and moving them up. And so if it's not the number of people or that have the right qualifications, then it's about removing barriers and biases. And so we should be able to do that within five years. We should be able to start ensuring by five years that corporations look like what Canada is, the diversity of Canada. So I, like you, would hope to see that as well. And, and I don't think it's a stretch goal. I think it's a it's an attainable goal. Ediola, thank you so much for your time. It's it's always so wonderful to speak to you and, um, and so nice to know that you're out in the world uh, making change um, and sharing your story so that we can all learn from it. I, uh, I can't thank you enough. And you've, you're such an inspiration and so such a motivation to me. And, and I hope when people hear this, they find it just as motivating and inspiring as I find it. Thank you so much, Shilpa. I do hope this blesses uh, somebody out there and causes them to continue to push for greatness because it is possible. The world is changing quicker than ever before. We don't know for certainty what will happen over the next few months or the next few years, but we will continue to adapt and share stories of strength so that we come out on the other side as a more inclusive, kinder, and understanding society. Thank you for listening. I'm Shilpa, and you've been listening to Her Climb. Did you enjoy the show? And you might want to subscribe to Her Climb podcast so you don't miss an episode. Her Climb podcasts come out every week in our very first season. Thank you.